Welcome to The Scope with Dr. K. I am Dr. Kaczynski. We're going to open the show today, as we always do, by stating that the goal of this show is to present you with a broad scope of value-based care issues, mainly involving the field of gastroenterology, but outside of GI as well. Our guest today is Dr. Angelo Sinopoli, Chief Network Officer for Upstream Healthcare. I know Angelo from our work on the Physician Focused Payment Model Technical Advisory Committee, PTAC, where he serves as its co-chair. Angelo is a transformational physician executive who most recently served as the System Executive Vice President and Chief Clinical Officer for Prisma Health, the largest not-for-profit integrated healthcare system in South Carolina, serving over a million patients annually. Angelo is a nationally recognized content expert and speaker on population health, care model development, health policy, and contracting strategy. He led Prisma's transition to value-based care and had executive oversight of one of the nation's largest clinically integrated networks with over 4,700 employed and independent providers. In addition, he plays guitar like me, but in addition to PTAC, he serves on a number of other state and national committees and advisory boards, including the Task Force Advisory Committee for the South Carolina Institute of Medicine, the Board of Directors of America's Physician Groups, and the CMS Healthcare Payment Learning and Action Network. Welcome to the show, Angelo. I don't know how you have time to play guitar. <laughs> well, thank you for that flattering introduction. Um, very thankful for that. And I want to thank you, Larry. First of all, I appreciate you inviting me to this uh, podcast and and to reiterate how much I've enjoyed working with you on PTAC. You've been a uh, great stimulus to us on PTAC and always bringing up interesting uh, thoughts and, and pushing us to think differently. Well, we're going we're gonna to get thoughts out of you today and we're going to push you to tell everybody how you think. <laughs> I typically start the interview by allowing the guests to introduce themselves. I'd like you to go through how you became who you are. Tell us about yourself, about your career. I'm old, so I have a long, a long history. <laughs> so, uh, you know, my first introduction to healthcare, uh, believe it or not, was actually when I was in high school. Worked at a local hospital. Back in those days, you know, you were allowed to learn and participate in things that uh, in today's world you would you would never be allowed to participate in. So it really stimulated my interest in healthcare, and kind of kind of pushed me to want to pursue a career. Wound up going to uh, medical school in South Carolina, Medical University of South Carolina, did internal medicine and then a pulmonary critical care fellowship. Uh, moved from there to directly to practicing at Greenville Health System, which was the precursor to Prisma Health. Ran the intensive care unit there, uh, became very interested in participating in things beyond clinical care, got interested in administration, participated in a lot of committee structures, and then ultimately became the chair of medicine there, was chair of medicine for 12 years, uh, grew the departments uh, there fairly dramatically over that period of time, and then moved on to chief medical officer of the health system and then chief clinical officer. And so I've been lucky enough that the region there was growing fast enough that it always gave me another opportunity to, to grow within within Prisma itself. Prisma evolved from the uh, merger of Greenville Health System in the upstate of South Carolina with the Midlands uh, Palmetto Health System, 
uh, in the Columbia market. And those two organizations came together to form Prisma Health. And I helped lead that merger. And so that was quite an experience uh, in and of itself. And then, you know, along the way, I got really interested in case management, care management, uh, population health, and developed the Upstate Network and uh, from scratch. And I, I can remember I just bought a brand new car and wound up putting 35,000 miles on it the first year, just traveling around from practice to practice, recruiting docs for the, for the network. And, and it was... Uh, a fantastic uh, experience. And we wound up building a huge network and then merged it with a, a smaller network in, in Columbia, South Carolina, when we merged. And so at the end of the day, we wound up with about 5,000 docs in the network, uh, 3,000 employed, 2,000 independent, a fairly large network. And it covered about two thirds of South Carolina. So that's where I spent most of my activities was as chief clinical officer of Prisma and helping drive their value-based uh, efforts and driving the networks. And we'll talk in a few minutes about uh, another entity I built called the Care Coordination Institute, because what I realized pretty quickly as we uh, built such a large network that you could not rely on hospital resources to support your network. The urgencies of the day of the hospital always take precedence. And so I was lucky enough to have a CEO that allowed me to build a freestanding enablement company called the CCI. And we can talk about that in a little later, but that really is what helped make our, our networks so successful. Well, Angelo, you, you stated you were old. I, I, I think I'm older than you. Uh, <laughs> but we, we both had our practice years during a period of time where healthcare moved from a little cottage industry into much more of a corporate type structure. Yep. And, and you and I both have moved along that ladder. So if I understand you correctly, you had to recruit doctors to build this network yep. and then, and then you had to actually manage them yes. and, and move and move the entire herd that you put together. <laughs> in the right direction. Now that that has a lot of challenges. Moving to population, healthcare, uh, value-based care. Talk to us about some of the challenges of moving a large provider group like that in the direction of pop health and value-based care. Yeah, and there there were. You're right. There were a lot of uh, challenges, and it took us you know four or five years to really get to a point where we were doing great work. Some of the first things was, you know, getting them engaged, getting them inspired and interested in doing value-based care was the first step. And then the second step is you, we really had to give them something tangible. So, so I'm in mm -hmm. this network now, what, what's happening different that wasn't happening before. That's why we built what I called the Care Coordination Institute. That's where we put all of our data and analytics separate from the hospital, firewalled from the hospital, purposefully to, to create a honest broker kind of environment. So independent docs and others felt comfortable having their data there. The, the big hospital wasn't going to get to see their data. And so we, we had our own data systems there, our, our own proprietary systems. We had partnerships with uh, MedInsights and Milliman. It was a fairly sophisticated, we, we managed 
two and a half million active lives day in and day out in that data and analytics system because we did a lot of reporting for, for primary care practices, particularly across the rest of South Carolina, in addition to our network. And then that's where we put all of our care management teams, our process improvement teams, our uh, community wellness, accountable communities teams, all in one location. So they woke up every morning thinking, this is all I have to do today. How, how am I going to move this network forward in, in these risk arrangements? And the data was very important because, as you know, the, the doctors thought that they were doing great work. <laughs> and yes. when, when you pull the data and, and let them see what they were really doing, they didn't believe the data. Mm-hmm. And so that, that took a while to convince them and, and uh, also to say the data sometimes was inaccurate. And it took us a long time to get it to where it was refined to the point that it was accurate and believable by the docs. And then once it got to that point, the docs really got engaged around, around the data. And so that, that was probably one of the biggest single issues that we had to accomplish with, with that many docs. And it's different when you just have a few hundred docs. When you've got 5,000 docs spread across, we literally had 80 different EMRs, Larry. Oh my God. Yes. And so, you know, the Epics and the Cerners were easy, but it's all these little mom and pop EMRs that, you know, are cloud-based kinds of EMRs that are hard to uh, get data from. So it took, took a lot of work, but we finally, finally got there. So that was the biggest thing. And then the second thing I would tell you is that in South Carolina, it was the land that managed care for God. Yeah, we really had a tough time convincing the payers that they needed to move to value-based care and risk contracts. And so that was another obstacle in getting the kind of contracts that we that we needed. And then, you know, communicating across 5000 physicians uh, was another obstacle. And just how do we create that communication, the tools, the the cascades, the the timing? You know, we, we went to a lot of having practicing docs create podcasts or create videos that the other docs would be interested in hearing. We made all the data totally transparent. So every doctor could see every other doctor's uh, outcomes. And so uh, the ones that had great outcomes, we would highlight and they would tell, this is how I got my diabetes outcomes to look so great. And the other doctors would learn from that. So, so it was a a collaborative kind of network. And Angelo, Data transparency. I mean, we, we use that term all the time, but you actually demonstrated the power of data transparency. We saw a dramatic increase when you know, we started out with nobody else is going to see your data. It'll just be back to you. And our, our outcomes were not bad, but they were just kind of floating along. Once we got agreement to make all outcomes transparent to everybody, the quality metrics shot up literally overnight because everybody didn't you know that nobody wanted to be the, the worst <laughs> yeah in terms of their outcomes so that was a tremendous change uh making it with the transparency and can i have a question who held the risk in these agreements was this the health system holding the risk or the or the provider that's a great question this was uh, all health system the health system held the the downside risk for everybody and so uh, the docs got the upside risk, but not the downside risk. Oh, uh, that, yeah. 
You know what? That was a tough sell to somebody on your part, but yeah, yes, it probably made it work. Yeah, it did. It did make it work. So the docs were willing to do it, and luckily for the hospitals, we never had to pay any money back. So they never actually had to write a check to any anybody. Another thing that we did, you know, uh, uh, later when we talk talk about, you know, really what helped engage some of the specialists too, is that we made sure that we had risk contracts across every product line. So we had Medicare, Medicare Advantage, Medicaid, commercial contracts, and direct-to-employer contracts. Because our feeling was that it wasn't enough volume or enough potential shared savings to change a practice's core activities to limit it to a few hundred Medicare patients in their practice. Right, right. And so this this wound up covering you know seventy percent of the patients they saw in their practices day in and day out, and so we were able to leverage that to change the core way they practice day in and day out. Angela, that is such an important point. You know, we run into this at Sonar because we have contracts with Blue Cross plans, but the practices want to practice the same process across all their patients. They, they really don't want to have different tiers of patients depending on what, what type of coverage the patients have. So the fact that you were able to harness the leverage of all of those health plans and different types of uh, payers, that's amazing that you were able to do that. Yeah. And I, and I do feel strongly that that is the key to success in the future is trying to drive networks that do own all, all of those product lines. You know, that's, uh, yeah. yep. that's the only way you're going to move the needle. Today, you are no longer at Prisma. You are currently at Upstream Health. What, what have you been building there? Yeah, it's a good question. So. One of the things that attracted me to Upstream when, when they called was that it solved a lot of the problems we were facing in our own networks. So one is, and, on, and although the health systems were willing to take the downside risk, it was risk that was limited by corridors. Okay, with Upstream, uh, they were willing to step in and take global risk. So they were taking full downside risk, which meant you got potential full upside uh, yeah. p- positive there. So so that was one barrier that it solved. The other barrier it solved was the expense to, to a network was the expense of the expertise. Since upstream was across multiple ACOs, they had significant data systems and they had significant uh, expertise and resources to spread across those networks that would have been expensive for a small network or practice to buy. So it solved that upfront cost standpoint. And then the other thing that it solved uniquely that really intrigued me was that, as you know, in most ACO models or, or most, most risk contracts, the docs work all year And then at the end of the year, the contract closes out, they cross their fingers and they hope that in six or eight months that, you know, their results will come back positive and they'll get a shared savings check. Well, the way Upstream approached it was we're so confident that overall we're going to be creating shared savings that we're going to pay the docs up front. Mm -hmm. We're going to pay them on a month to month basis based on their quality outcomes. And they get a check every month. And if their quality improves, the check uh, goes up. 
And so it was real-time incentives. So it was global risk, staff and embedded staff and expertise, and real-time payment for improving quality outcomes. And so that was such a unique model that I thought, I've got to give this a shot and see, mm -hmm. see how this works. Well, you know, I, I'm a big believer in, in providing upfront payments to physicians that, you know, sometimes you wait 18 months because you'll have a, a, an episode that's for a year, then it takes everybody, we well, got to have three more months to have the, the incurred but not reported come in, then you have to analyze all the data. It's, but before you, you know it, it's 18 months. And so you need that money more timely. And we've talked about that at, at PTEC. Uh, I'm going to break right here. If you have just tuned in, you're listening to The Scope with Dr. K. Our guest today is Dr. Angelo Sinopoli, Chief Network Officer for Upstream Health. Well, speaking of PTEC, let's shift gears a little bit. Uh, you and I have both learned at PTEC that risk is being pushed down from CMS and from the commercial health plans to Medicare Advantage plans to ACOs and other population-based total cost of care entities. You told us how you dealt with that at Prisma and Upstream, but I, I just, I'd love to get your, your thoughts on how do we do this on a grander scale? How, how do we get these ACOs and MA plans to have the, the necessary infrastructure? You built a lot of infrastructure at Prisma. How do, how do we how do we push that down? You know, more than just push the risk down, how do we push the structure down? I think that is the million dollar question because the infrastructure is very expensive and the expertise that knows how not only to develop it, but to do the data and analytics and do the care management models is scarce and it's very, very expensive. My personal belief over the years has become that I, I just don't see very small practices being able to sustain that expense and that risk. And so I think uh, developing geographic footprint with uh, larger networks that can work together to share expenses, they don't have to merge into a single network, but can they develop shared services organizations? Can there be an aggregator that they partner with that helps aggregate networks, helps aggregate uh, uh, patient lives uh, that can then afford the actuarial variation year after year that a small network or small practice uh, couldn't couldn't tolerate a down year in a global risk arrangement. So I think that's going to be the key. Th these aggregators uh, developing and partnering with ACOs and having regional ACOs. I'm not suggesting that networks that are very far apart separately geographically necessarily come together, but particularly in a local environment. When I say local, I mean in a, a tri-state area you mm -hmm. know, where, where you can actually share, share resources, uh, share data, you know, contracting expertise, those, those kinds of things. I think that's going to have to evolve in the market to really make things um, successful for these smaller networks. We're seeing this one force. And whenever I sit, sit in the PTEC meetings, I see two opposing forces, or maybe not opposing, but converging forces. We have this the top-down force that we just discussed, where 
the current holders of risk are trying to push that risk down to smaller organizations, the, the payviders, you know, yep. the providers who are taking risk. But at the same time, and maybe Prisma was a real example of this, we're seeing the large primary care entities accepting full risk and pulling up from the bottom. Yes. Um, and, 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 you know, like the Oak Streets and the Chen Meds that presented to us at, at mm. PTAC. So where do you see this going? Do you, do you, I mean, the specialists are sort of stuck in between in the mm. middle here. Do you see the, the primary care grassroots type of entity having dominance going forward? So I do think that primary care is going to emerge as the dominant player in the market going forward. And the reality of it is, is that more and more physicians are becoming employed. You know, even, even the primary care docs, you know, we're, we're up to between 75 and 80% of all docs being employed now. And that trend is continuing to increase some, although there are spots here and there where the trend is, is reversing a little bit. But even in that environment, I think the primary care docs are going to take precedent in terms of managing the vast percentage of the patients that are going to be at risk. And that's where the linear integrity of that patient being attached to the primary care doc as they move through the system will emanate from the primary care practice with a team. Uh, you know, it's going to move away from individual responsibilities to team responsibilities that include care management teams, population health teams, and specialists. And specialists have to be involved. That's where a lot of the spend is. You know, that's where a lot of the standards of care come from or the specialist. You know, one of the things that we did was we had primary care and specialists meeting together regularly, developing standard protocols for care around every major disease that we were managing. And we had had metrics for all the specialists that they had to had to meet. And those were transparent. You know, if, if we had cardiologists that weren't doing well, that became transparent to the primary care docs. The other thing I think that helped incorporate the specialist into the network ironically, was the direct-to-employer contracts mm. because the employers, and we had some big employers, you know, some very, very uh, global employers in our market, they, they demanded an audience with the specialist and said, you know, we, we, we are curious as to why you're using this protocol versus that protocol. And so the specialist had to come and be able to explain why they were doing certain things. And most of the time it was logical. Some of the times it was, you know, the oncologist might go, well, you know, you're right. This, this is a bioequivalent uh, therapy here and we're using one that's four times as expensive. You know, we'll switch to the other one. And so there was a lot of learning back and forth in, in a very cordial way, but it engaged the specialist a lot to be responsible for working with the primary care docs to develop the standards, meeting with the employers, et cetera that really drove that specialty integration. Angelo, you have, I, I learned something about my guests, you know, every time I have them on a podcast, I am really impressed with your ability to do the blocking and tackling you did through the course of all of this work to bring primaries and specialists together in a disease-based team. That, that's not done very often. <laughs> I haven't heard too many people talk about that. And and I love it. I love hearing that. And and you really have been in the weeds with all of this. And 
I wish I would have been with you along, along that way because it would have been a lot of fun to, to work together. So I, I, my final question to you, if you could start with a blank sheet of paper mm-hmm. and you weren't having to live with the realities you've lived with through the course of all this, mm-hmm. what would your ideal model for value-based care look like? So, you know, I think during the course of this conversation, we've really described what it would look like. And I think it would be a, a primary care-driven network of, of providers that are highly engaged, that are exquisitely data-informed. We can't underestimate that. But would also include all the other entities we've talked about. It would include specialists. It would include hospitals, holding them accountable for their in-hospital complication rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, measuring those and holding them financially accountable for those things. It would also include what I would call accountable communities where we're actually working with the communities and their community-based organizations, the local EMS systems, et cetera, integrating all that into a single system of care across, across the organization. It has to be all payer, all product lines, You've got to get get that volume to create enough movement to change practice patterns. And I think in a nutshell, those are that's what it would look like. That's a lot of work. I know. I've written I've written them down. Primary care based data informed mm-hmm. base, mm-hmm. accountable specialists, accountable hospitals, accountable communities, and an all payer solution. Love it. I love it. Angelo. We will watch what you do uh, going forward. <laughs> you, certainly, you certainly have the, the knowledge and the experience to uh, continue to help all of this uh, get moved in the right direction. But it's, it's like moving a container ship through the Panama Canal. It is. But, <laughs> but with, with people like you, we'll, we'll get it moved forward. And I, I um, appreciate what you're doing uh, both in these podcasts and with, with PTAC. And again, it's just... Uh, Interesting to hear you talk every time we meet at PTAC about your ideas and your, your challenges you put forth. So uh, I think we just need to keep keep pushing and uh, eventually eventually we'll get there. So we'll, we'll move that glacier eventually. Well, thank you, Angelo, and thanks to our audience for tuning in. You can access our podcasts on most all of the podcast platforms like Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, and others. Learn more about the show on the programs page on healthcarenowradio.com. And lend your voice to the conversation on Twitter at HC Now Radio. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at SonarMD. We're bringing patients, providers, and payers together to reimagine care. Until next time, I'm Dr. K. Stay well.